Welcome back to Oliver's Insights, part of the Simplifying Investing podcast series. It's great to have you here. A reminder that this podcast is general in nature and hasn't taken your circumstances into account. It's important you consider your personal circumstances and speak to a financial advisor before deciding what's right for you. Any general tax information provided is provided as a guide only. And with that out of the way, here's Shane. G'day everyone and welcome to the latest issue of the Oliver's Insights podcast series. A recurring theme in Australia over the last almost two years has been the Reserve Bank meetings and whether they raise interest rates or not. Of course, many of the times over that period, they have in fact raised interest rates. In the last week, this week, we've seen the Reserve Bank leave rates on hold at 4.35%. I guess the good news is that uh, there's no Reserve Bank meeting now until February of next year and thereafter, the meetings will come every six weeks. So there'll be eight meetings in the year ahead rather than 11. Also, when they have those meetings, it will be a rather busy day because there will be a press conference at 4pm. And of course, the Statement of Monetary Policy, which comes out at meetings in February, May, August and September, will come at the same time as the RBA's interest rate decision. So a bit of an action-packed day. I don't think it's going to necessarily result in changes or improvements in the setting of monetary policy. But of course, uh, that's something the RBA review recommended they should do. So it's going to be interesting to see how that pans out, but at least we won't have as many RBA meetings. Of course, as alluded to at the Reserve Bank's meeting this week, the Reserve Bank left rates on hold at 4.35%. This was in line with our own view and that of most economists, along with money market expectations. In fact, the money market had attached zero probability to a rate hike at this week's meeting. The decision to hold followed a 13th hike at its November meeting, which meant a total of 425 basis points of interest rate hikes over 19 months, or 4.25 percentage points, depending on which way you want to look at it, which has been, of course, the strongest and biggest interest rate hiking cycle since the late 1980s, surpassing that going into the GFC, uh, the early 1990s and various other ones along the way. Of course, uh, many might say, well, cash rate today is not the 18% of late 1989. It's uh, well below that. 4.35% and mortgage rates are not 17%, they're circa 7%, depending on the sort of deal you've got from your bank, which is a big difference, of course, but uh, also bear in mind that the level of household debt today is three times greater relative to people's incomes than it was back in 1989. So a far more threatening situation for many households than was the case back then. The decision to raise interest rates back in November, of course, took cash rates to the levels last seen in 2011 and mortgage rates to levels last seen in 2008. Now, of course, in looking at the Reserve Bank's decision, I think there is no doubt that they yet again considered whether to hike or to hold. In this regard, the Reserve Bank noted that since the last meeting, new information has been broadly in line with their expectations. The October monthly CPI suggests inflation continues to moderate and the Reserve Bank doesn't expect much further in the way of wages growth or a further acceleration in wages growth, I should say. However, the Reserve continued to stress the importance of returning inflation to target and keeping inflation expectations down and remains concerned about sticky services inflation with the jobs market easing but still remaining tight. While the Reserve Bank retained the softened wording from the November meeting that whether further tightening of monetary policy is required will depend upon the data and the evolving assessment of risks, it's clear that it still retains a bias to raise rates at this point in time. So the decision at the next meeting will either be to leave rates on hold or to raise them. In the absence of any downward shock, they won't be considering cutting rates. Now, of course, there is no meeting between now and next February. They have a rest in January.
January, thankfully. And of course, by the end of January, going to that February meeting, they will have December quarter inflation data, two more rounds of retail sales and jobs data, and revised Reserve Bank forecasts. So all of these will be critical in that decision in May. Given its hawkish bias, our view is that the risk of another rate hike remains high at around 40%. And if it occurs, it probably will be at the February meeting. However, we think there is a very strong case that rates are at the top. I must admit, we've been way too optimistic on this over the last year or more. The Reserve Bank has raised rates far higher than we would have thought, even though we have been in a period of disinflation. But our view remains that the RBA has done more than enough to bring inflation back to target and that we are likely at the peak in rates. There's several reasons for that. Firstly, while the economy has been far more resilient than we expected when rate hikes started 19 months or so ago, in fact, I think it's 20 months, it is well known in the words of Milton Friedman that monetary actions affect economic conditions only after a lag that is both long and variable. This can be up to 18 months or more. In other words, that lag can be up to 18 months or more. This is because it takes a while for the hikes, for a rate hike, to be passed through to borrowers and for them to adjust their spending and for this to impact companies and jobs. For example, interest rates go up eventually, often in Australia's case, it can take up to two months. That rate hike is passed through to consumers and they start paying the higher rate. Initially, consumers might have savings buffers to draw on, so they run down their savings a little bit or may not realise the extent to which their disposable income has been reduced. So it takes a while for the response to occur. And of course, that response may build up over several rate hikes, but the key point is that it takes a while for all of that to flow through. And then when spending falls, companies eventually adjust and lower employment. And of course, that feeds back to the household sector. So by the time all of that feeds through, a lot of time can elapse. The experience of the late 1980s in Australia where the cash rate was raised from 10.5% to 18% through 1988 and 1989, but unemployment kept falling only for the economy to then fall into recession in 1990 is a classic example of these lags at work. I was a very junior economist back then, but I well remember Paul Keating, the then treasurer, saying something to the effect that the economy was like effervescent champagne in a champagne glass, so effervescent that it's bubbling over the sides and needs to be calmed down. Of course, uh, the tone had changed as we went into 1990. But as I mentioned earlier, rates back then, yes, they were a lot higher. I know there's a lot of baby boomer listeners might be out there saying, yeah, but we paid 70% mortgage rates way back in 1989. Well, we did. I didn't have a mortgage back then. I got one sooner thereafter, but uh, my fellow baby boomers did pay 70% mortgage rates back then. But as I also mentioned, the level of household debt to income was one third of current levels back then. So if you make the comparison between 7% mortgage rates today and 17% back then, and then allow for much higher debt levels today, obviously those with a mortgage today are suffering more than those with a mortgage on average were back in 1989, early 1990. This time around, the lag has likely been lengthened by savings buffers built up in the pandemic, the reopening boost, more than normal home borrowers locking in at 2% or so fixed rates. So it's taken longer for the rise in interest rates to pass through to all households with a mortgage and a degree of labour hoarding boosting employment. And we all know the jobs market has remained quite strong. However, these protections are likely now wearing off. In particular, the 13 rate hikes since May of last year mean that a variable rate borrower with a $600,000 mortgage will have seen around an extra $17,000 a year in extra annual mortgage payments. Most may have sought a better deal. 
In other words, phoned up the bank or switched to someone else. But even if they got a 0.5% discount on their mortgage rate, it would now amount to an extra 14,000, nearly 15,000 in extra mortgage payments, 14,900 to be precise, in extra mortgage payments on an annualized basis. This has already seen housing debt interest payments as a share of household income double from their lows, with scheduled total mortgage payments rise to a record share of income. It's hard to see this not having a big impact on household spending, particularly given the Reserve Bank's own analysis based on variable and fixed borrowers. And you can read this in the most recent financial stability review published in early October. And it shows that around when you combine the analysis for those two groups, those on fixed and those on variable rates, that around one in seven households with a mortgage were already cash flow negative in July. And of course, that would be much higher by now. Now, cash flow negative is a term that often gets bandied about. Basically, it's taken to refer in this context to a situation where the household's income is less than their essential living expenses and their mortgage payments. So quite a stressful time. Now, of course, that house can survive for a while. They have to cut back. There's no room left over for discretionary spending, but they survive by running down their savings buffers or maybe borrowing from someone else, mum and dad or whoever. But of course, there is a big limit to that. Um, you don't want to keep running down your savings buffers because eventually you'll run out and that causes immense mortgage stress. So there's no doubt, I think, that the interest rate hikes that we've seen will start to bite. Secondly, while the data is noisy, we are seeing ongoing evidence that rate hikes are biting with real per person retail sales down something like 4% on a year ago and the ABS's monthly household spending indicator for October pointing to now falling real consumer spending. We're also seeing a sharp fall in building approvals from their highs. We're seeing slowing business investment plans and of course we've seen job vacancies fall I think over the last five quarters. In other words being well down from their highs something like down 20% from their highs. And finally unemployment is starting a modest rising trend and now we are seeing signs that home price gains are slowing again, which is um, something we've seen in the last week or so. Combined, this is likely to continue to bear down on underlying inflationary pressures. And while a surge in petrol prices was a concern a month ago, global oil prices have since turned down again, and this is flowing through to lower petrol prices. Thirdly, the news on Australian inflation has improved after a setback in August and September and points to an ongoing fall in inflation. The monthly CPI indicator for October came in far less than expected at 4.9% year on year, down from 5.6% in September, with an implied monthly fall of 0.3%. Of course, the monthly CPI can be very volatile. Various subsidies impacted in October. Key services like hairdressing, dental and pet services weren't measured in the month of October and underlying measures of inflation fell by less. So there is a case to be cautious. But the good news is that the downtrend in inflation looks to be resuming. Consistent with this are Australian Pipeline Inflation Indicator, which is a, an amalgam of various leading indicators of inflation, points to a further fall in inflation ahead. In fact, monthly inflation could have a three in front of it by December, while some fret that Australian inflation is now well above the circa 3% rates of inflation that apply in the US, Canada and Europe. It should be recalled that Australian inflation lagged on the way up and peaked three to six months later than in those other countries and is doing the same on the way down. And maybe that lag was because our economy reopened from COVID sometime after many other countries did. And we've also seen a slower, more stretched out flow through of the rise in energy costs. Bottom line is that just as the Australian inflation lagged on the way up, it's now lagging on the way down and there's no reason to be alarmed that it's currently higher. In fact, with monthly rises in November 
and December 2022 of 0.9% and 1.5% respectively due to drop out in the next two months worth of monthly CPI releases, we are likely to see monthly inflation with a three in front of it by year end. This will bring Australian inflation more into line with that seen in the US, Canada and Europe. Fourthly, the decline in global inflation points to a broader easing in global inflation pressures, which will impact Australia via lower than otherwise import prices. And it also highlights that monetary policy still works in slowing inflation, and so there is no reason why it shouldn't work here too. Finally, it should be noted that while the Reserve Bank has not raised its key policy rate as much as in other countries, and I know a lot of people fret about this, we've gone to 4.35%, but it's 5% in Canada, 5.25% in the UK, 5.37% in the US, and 5.5% in New Zealand, so we've lagged these other countries. It's worth pointing out, though, the rise in actual mortgage rates paid by households in Australia, the rise in Australia way exceeds that in most other countries. And that simply reflects the higher reliance on variable rates or short dated fixed rates in Australia compared to many other comparable countries. In other words, there's been a much bigger hit to household cash flows in Australia than there has been in places like Canada, UK, US and elsewhere. So, in concluding, the short-term risk for interest rates still remains on the upside, given the Reserve Bank's own tightening bias. So we are allowing for a 40% risk of another hike, which could come most likely, we think, in February, if it does occur. Yet continuing to raise interest rates will only add to the already very high risk of recession, particularly given the uncertainty around the long and variable lags with which rate hikes impact the economy, meaning that there is a big impact from those rate hikes yet to fully show up. As a result, the economy is likely to slow further into next year, which along with supply chain improvements is likely to push headline inflation down to three point something earlier than the Reserve Bank is allowing. As a result, our base case is that the cash rate has peaked, with rate cuts starting in the second half of next year. Key to watch, of course, in relation to all of this will be the global economy, developments in household spending, and I think they're going to soften. Inflation, and as I mentioned, I think that's going to go down to three point something with the December monthly numbers. And of course, the labour market, where I think we will see a rising trend in the unemployment rate. I hope that's been of some value. Until we meet again. Adios. To keep up to date with Dr. Oliver and the Simplifying Investing podcast series, be sure to subscribe to your favourite streaming platform.